Emerging Case Law and Statutes, It Can Win and Lose Cases. In my podcast, I discuss new case law holdings and statutes as they apply to our California civil court systems. Hello, everyone. I am Eric Ganchi, a trial lawyer with our San Diego law firm, Casey Gary. I focus my practice serving persons who suffered traumatic brain injuries through the fault of other persons and corporations. Please enjoy the Ganchi Law Update, a Casey Gary podcast. Is jogging a recreational activity potentially protecting defendant against a claim of negligence and premises liability? If you are jogging on someone's property and injure yourself, can defendant be liable for negligence or failing to properly maintain their premises? The answer is it depends. It's usually within the law, but this 2000 or 2022 decision, Rucker versus WinCal LLC, gives guidance. The site for Tucker is 74 Cal App 5th 883 and is in our show notes. The law is California Civil Code 846, subsection A, which says this. An owner of any estate or any other interest in real property, whether possessory or non-possessory, owns no duty of care to keep the premises safe for entry or use by others for any recreational purpose or to give any warning of hazardous conditions, uses of, structures, or activities on those premises to um, to persons entering for a recreational purpose purpose, although exceptions apply. So this term recreational purposes, what does that mean legally? California Civil Code 846 sub B lists as examples fishing, hunting, camping, water sports, hiking, spelunking, sport parachuting, riding, including animal riding, snowmobiling, and all other types of vehicular riding, rock collecting, sightseeing, picnicking, nature study, nature contacting, recreational gardening, gleaning, hand gliding, private non-commercial aviation activities, winter sports, and viewing or enjoying historical, archaeological, scenic, natural, or scientific sites. However, this is not an exhaustive list, as Rucker explains. So what happened here in Rucker? Plaintiff is training for a half marathon. She's jogging on defendant's land and there was a homeless encampment, and to avoid the encampment, she ran onto the street's bicycle lane where she was struck and injured by a car. Defendant files a motion for summary judgment against plaintiff. To win that MSJ, defendant must show the plaintiff has not established and reasonably cannot be expected to establish one or more elements of the cause of action in question. The trial court granted defendant's MSJ and plaintiff appealed. This court agrees with the trial court and continues to grant defendant's MSJ, so plaintiff loses here. Plaintiff argued jogging is not specifically listed in the California Civil Code 846, but the court here is not persuaded since jogging was akin to hiking. The court says this, she was not, for instance, jogging because she was late for work, an activity that would fall within a statutory definition of recreational purpose. Rather, she was engaged in an activity for pleasure or exercise intended to refresh the body or mind by diversion, amusement, or play. The court further says this, generally, whether one has entered property for a recreational purpose within the meaning of the statute is a question of fact to be determined through a consideration of the totality 
of the facts and circumstances, including the prior use of land. Plaintiff here must have testified at her deposition or through formal discovery that she was training for her half marathon. And the court says, while the plaintiff's subjective intent will not be controlling, it is relevant to show purpose and the court holds in favor of defense here. Does not remembering an incident win a motion for summary judgment for defense? In litigation, if plaintiff filed a lawsuit against defendant and defendant thinks with plaintiff's case there is no triable issue as to any material fact, defendant can file a motion for summary judgment. This is what defendant filed in this 2022 Court of Appeal case, Caney v. Maza, cited as 74 Cal App 5th, 201, which I list in our show notes. With an MSJ motion, defendant must show an element of a cause of action cannot be established by submitting evidence that the plaintiff does not possess and cannot reasonably obtain evidence supporting the element. A moving defendant may rely on factual devoid discovery responses to shift the burden of proof. Once the burden shifts, the plaintiff must set forth the specific facts which prove the existence of a tribal issue of material fact. Causation must be established by non-speculative evidence. In citing other cases, the court here says, no inference of negligence arises from the mere proof of a fall upon the stairway. In order to impose liability on the owner, it must be shown that a dangerous condition existed and that the defendant knew or should have known of it. While under some circumstance, some circumstances, negligence may be inferred from the existence of a dangerous condition, the burden rests upon the plaintiff to show the existence of a dangerous condition and the defendant and that defendant knew or should have known of it. Now, what happens in this case? Defendant falls down, defendant stairs, defendant, I'm sorry, plaintiff injures herself and alleges she fell because defendant's stairs were not safe and did not include a handrail. Plaintiff does not actually remember the fall and defendant files this MSJ with the argument, if you can't remember the fall, then there are no tribal issues of fact. The trial court agreed with the defendant saying, or the court, this court says, the trial court concluded that appellant's inability to remember the fall meant that she lacked non-speculative evidence of causation. However, this court disagreed with the trial court saying this, a slip and fall plaintiff need not remember her fall to recover damages pr provided the evidence gives rise to a reasonable and probable inference that the defendant's negligence was a substantial contributing factor. The court reasons this, it is true that a handrail or safety safely sized risers would not have blocked appellant's fall, but a trier of fact could still reasonably infer they would have prevented the fall. Is a California Code of Civil Procedure 998 enforceable when you only reference 998 to accept instead of describing actual acceptance instructions? California Code of Civil Procedure 998 gives trial attorneys a powerful tool. If executed properly, if you 998 the other side an offer to settle, and if the other side fails to beat your 998 offer at trial, then the other side may have to pay your costs 
incurred after your 998 pursuant to CCP 998. However, a 998 that does not provide a proper provision to accept the 998 may be invalid. This was the issue with this 2021 decision, Finland v. Chase, cited as 68 Cal App 5th 934, and listed in our show notes. In this case, plaintiff 998's defendants and her 998 letter stated that her offers were made pursuant to section 998, but said nothing about how the offer offers were to be accepted. That was the problem. Plaintiff beat her 998 at trial and then filed a motion for costs per 998. Defendant fought that saying plaintiff's 998 was not drafted properly as it did not include a specific way to accept. The court states this as the only issue here. The only issue before us is whether plaintiff's offers to settle were valid under section 998, a determination that turns entirely on whether the offer letters contained the required acceptance provision. Finland analyzes another case on point, Roland v. Pacific Specialty Insurance Co., a 2013 case cited as 220 Cal App 4th 280, also in our show notes, where the 998 had no further indication that the acceptance needed to be in writing or signed by the offeree's attorney. Per Roland, there is no magic language or specific format required for either an offer or acceptance under Section 998, but at a minimum, the offeror's acceptance provision simply must specify the manner in which the offer is to be accepted, and these instructions must necessarily incorporate a written acceptance signed by the accepting party or its counsel according to the terms of CCP 998 subsection B. So here in Finland, the court holds plaintiff's 998 is not valid nor enforceable. The court says this, a rule that the acceptance provision could be satisfied by a simple reference to section 998 alone would undermine the particulars listed in subdivision B by the legislature and contravene the fundamental principle of statutory interpretation that courts should give meaning to every word of a statute if possible and should avoid a construction making any word surplusage. The court also notes this, of equal concern is that such a rule would undermine the numerous and consistent prior decisions holding that Section 998 offers must contain an explicit acceptance provision. As this court has succinctly observed, it is well settled that if an offer fails to include an acceptance provision, the offering party may not obtain the benefits of Section 998. The 998 acceptance provision must be clear and firm, not soft. As the court says here, a reference to the offeree allowing judgment to be entered in a letter proposing a settlement is not the same thing as providing instructions that offerees can follow if they wish to accept such an offer. The California Supreme Court weighs in on minors' statute of limitations with this case, Shalabi v. Fontana. Time matters, and in the law, certain time frames apply when an injury occurs to when a lawsuit must be filed. If you fall outside that statute of limitations, the court may time bar your claim, which may leave you with no justice because you missed the deadline to be filed. 
California has many rules to which statutes of limitations apply to certain types of cases. In addition, if the plaintiff is a minor when the injury or damage first occurred, California allows the statute of limitations to toll under the minor until the minor plaintiff turns 18 per California Code of Civil Procedure Section 352 to then file a claim. With that, we get back to how time matters. For example, many personal injury cases have a two-year statute of limitation, which run, which run from the accrual of the cause of action per California Code of Civil Procedure sections 335.1 and 340 subsection C. Although other time frames apply, like the six-month statute of limitations to file a government claim against a public entity, per California Government Code Section 911.2. But this may raise questions to how we count the first day and the last day to file this a lawsuit. And the California Supreme Court decided this issue in 2021 with this case that I'm talking about now, Shalabi v. Fontana, cited as 11 Cal 5th 842 and referenced in our show notes, and as it relates to a statute when a minor turns 18. Specifically, the issue in this case was this. In cases in which the statute of limitations is told because based on the plaintiff's minor age, the day after which the tolling period ends is either included or excluded in calculating whether an action is timely filed within the limitations period. This case sadly involved a police officer wrongfully shooting and killing plaintiff's father and plaintiff was a minor when the tragedy happened. Here is the statute timeline um, here. One, the plaintiff's date of birth was December 3rd, 1993. Two, plaintiff reached the age of majority on December 3rd, 2011. And three, plaintiff filed this original complaint on December 3rd, 2013. Yikes. Cutting it close to the deadline, and defendant argued plaintiff was time-barred from filing the claim, arguing they missed their deadline to file the case. First, here is the general law requiring whether we count first days and last days when calculating statute of limitations. Here's the law. The time in which any act provided by law is to be done is computed by excluding the first day and including the last, unless the last day is a holiday, and then it's also excluded. That is from California Code of Civil Procedure, Section 12. From this case, Shalabi, this is a neat piece of history. The court says this, This general statutory rule was first codified in 1850 as Section 304 of the Original Practice Act and has remained unchanged since its enactment in 1872. So here, do we include plaintiff's actual 18th birthday to calculate the statute of limitations? No. The court says this, an individual's 18th birthday is excluded when calculating the applicable limitations period. And then per CCP 12, we include the last day. So specifically here in Shalabi, plaintiff's claim was filed timely and not time barred. And that concludes this episode of the Ganchi Law Update. Thanks for listening, subscribing, and sharing. Please visit cglaw.com for further blogs case updates, and news about our firm. That's CG Law, as in Casey Gary Law, dot com.